0: It's Wednesday, September 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The top U.S. military leaders were testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee and took aim at actions by both Presidents Trump and Biden when it came to Afghanistan. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that the deal that Trump made with the Taliban had a demoralizing effect on Afghan soldiers. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that he thought we should keep at least 2,500 troops there to maintain stability, despite Biden denying his advisors told him so. Daniel Flatley, congressional reporter at Bloomberg News, fills us in on what to know. Next, could a DNA test help you have a better drug experience? There's an emerging industry making at-home testing kits that looks at different genetic traits that could help people understand how they will react to cannabis or psychedelic drugs and find the right dose. Companies that are looking to get into alternative therapies for depression, pain, PTSD, and other ailments are trying to make sure you don't have a bad trip. Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: Yes, my assessment was, back in the fall of 20 and it remained consistent throughout that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2500 and it could bounce up to 3500 maybe something like that uh, in order to move toward a negotiated gated solution.
0: Joining us now is Daniel Flatley, congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us Daniel. Thanks for having me. We are seeing the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee on Tuesday, and they were talking about a range of issues, mostly Afghanistan and and what happened there. Both of them were giving some pointed criticism at uh, President Trump and Joe Biden for the way things rolled out. So what are we hearing from these top military leaders when it comes to what's going on, what happened in Afghanistan?
1: Well, I think the main sort of line of inquiry today uh, is about what the recommendations for troop levels were prior to the decision to to pull out of Afghanistan um, by September 11th of this year. Obviously, uh, we've we've left uh, before that deadline at the end of August, but uh, that was the deadline that President uh, Joe Biden put forward earlier this year. And, you know, a lot of the members of the committee, particularly the Republicans, were sort of trying to get uh, Secretary Austin and General Milley to comment on what their recommendations were for troop levels and you know when they made those recommendations and if they made those direct, uh, recommendations directly to President Biden. General Milley and General Frank McKenzie, who's the uh, CENTCOM commander, both said that their preference or their recommendation personally would be that uh, 2,500 troops remain in Afghanistan, basically, um, you know, on a, on a more or less permanent basis in order to maintain the security situation there. Um, they said they communicated that to the Trump administration, and they communicated that to folks in the Biden administration. Now, the issue is, did they tell President Joe Biden this specifically, directly to him? And they didn't really comment on that. They sort of shied away from saying explicitly whether they told the president that. And the reason that's important is because a lot of the Republicans on the committee are, are referencing a August 18th interview that the president did with George Stephanopoulos on ABC, where the president said that he didn't receive any specific recommendation about keeping troops in Afghanistan. So that's kind of been the major point of contention right now. And beyond that, of course, they got into some of the communications that General Milley, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had with his uh, Chinese counterparts.
0: Yeah. When it comes to Afghanistan, the quote from Biden was, no one said that to me that I can recall. So, you know, a lot of people are poking on that. That's kind of a easy way to get around, you know, saying, hey, nobody told me or, you know, they might have said something, but I just don't remember. So, yeah, a lot of people are trying to poke some holes in all of that. And, you know, before we get into the Trump China stuff, uh, you know, just a little more on this, you know, the generals did say that, you know, they wanted to keep that force there. They wanted to not put a timeline on things, make it more conditions based. But what they also said is that, you know, they expected that the Taliban would take over. But they, they just didn't have the full understanding that it would happen so quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that uh, it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around, right? Because um, there's a lot of sort of conflicting testimony on this point. Uh, you have uh, General uh, McKenzie, again, who's the chairman or uh, commander of um, Central Command, saying that his recommendation was to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan and that he foresaw, uh, if U.S. forces withdrew, that the um, the country would rapidly fall to the Taliban um, and, and the government, not only the, mil- the Afghan military, but the government would fall. Um, you know, he said that I didn't think it would happen in days. I thought it would be weeks or months. But clearly there was a consensus among the military brass that Uh, the Afghanistan government and the Afghanistan military were sort of resting on somewhat shaky ground in terms of resisting the Taliban without uh, U.S. support. You know, the line that the leaders at the Pentagon have said repeatedly is that there was no intelligence assessment that said, Kabul was going to fall in 11 days, or that the whole country was going to fall in 11 days. I mean, that may very well be true that there was no intelligence assessment that said with that amount of specificity that that would happen. But what we do know is that there were certainly assessments out there that said sometime this fall, you know, within a month or two, that the country would fall. So there is clearly a sense that things could happen very quickly. And then you also had sort of this storyline emerge today where the leaders at the pentagon are saying that the agreement that the trump administration negotiated with the taliban in doha was a source of sort of demoralization for the afghan right. security forces and that sort of precipitated some deals that uh, maybe local commanders made with the taliban in advance of of the deadline so i think i think one of the big takeaways here is that the military was on a completely different page from the administration and this was sort of joe biden's decision at the end of the day whether or not they told you know, Biden directly, 2,500 is the number, don't withdraw below that, or, or whether that was communicated in some other form, it's clear that the military was not uh, sort of on board, per se, with this withdrawal. Now, of course, once the president says that that's the plan, you have to go, go forward with that. Right, but, exactly. um, you know, that's kind of where where things stand at the moment.
0: What did uh, General Mark Milley say with regards to President Trump and China? Because a lot of it was being made about how that he told his Chinese counterparts that we were not going to attack and and all this. It seems like he explained it pretty well. I mean, they never had an intention to attack China, and they were very worried about something like that. So he just communicated that his job was to de-escalate.
1: Yeah, I mean, his his sort of opening statement... um... He addressed this in his opening statement, and it sort of reminded me a little bit of like when you're in grade school or high school and you get called to the principal's office and you're sort of like, I know why you want me here. You know, I know what you're going to ask me about. (laughs) You're going to ask me about these uh, calls to to China. Um, And so he he sort of said, you know, at the beginning, look, I know I want to I want to take some time to address this. And what he said was basically that this was part of his regular duties that he got clearance from. Secretary of Defense at the time, Mark Esper, and later from um, Christopher Miller, who was the uh, Secretary of Defe- acting Secretary of Defense sort of in the last few days of um, the Trump administration, that these calls were, were you know, part of sort of a normal deconfliction routine and that he had clearance sort of up and down the chain to do this and that there's nothing untoward or out of the ordinary right. here. Now, what he did say sort of off the cuff, which was kind of interesting, was he referenced a January 8th call that he had with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And he said Pelosi reached out to him and was very concerned about what's going to happen with the nuclear codes or, you know, could could President Trump um, go rogue, in a sense, and, and order some sort of attack. And, and he basically said that he addressed her concerns and and everything was very much about the routine, and that even though the sole authority rests with the president, there's a whole process in place so that he wouldn't act alone, and so on and so forth. But then he sort of went off script, as it were, and said, "And I also told her that I was in no position, or it was not my duty to co- you know, comment on the president's mental, uh, you know, mental state or or mental abilities." And so that was a little bit strange, <laughs> a little bit off <laughs> script. But he did sort of, I think, try to communicate to, to folks today that what he was doing was sort of all part of a, of a routine process at the Pentagon. Although I think what was really interesting is that it emerged that he had talked to not only Bob Woodward and Robert Acosta for this this book that we're talking about now, these comments that we're talking about now, but to other authors of other books. And and Republicans have really picked up on that as sort of a theme, like, why were you talking to all these reporters? And you know, how long did it take? And did this distract you from your other duties and things like that? So it's Right. In some ways, sort of, um, it could be you know seen as an unforced error on his part, on Millie's part, to sort of be spending all this time talking with the press about these sensitive issues when you know there were some very uh, real problems uh, presenting themselves. Uh, on the other hand, you know he sort of said, "Well, this is Millie said that this is part of my job is to be transparent and so on and so forth." So around and round we go. But that's that's uh, a lot of what what happened today.
0: Yeah, definitely, because you know as you mentioned too, you know Republicans were calling on on Milly to resign even just over this stuff, you know, but basically saying that he was kind of going around Trump uh, that, you know, that's why he's going that extra effort to say that everything was kind of done above the board. So, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to see if anything else comes out of all of this. But obviously, you know, a lot of investigation still have has yet to be done on, on what exactly happened with all of it. Daniel Flatley, congressional reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you.
2: a lot of these companies may one day also plan to take data now that they have, you know, as they develop a database of people who have these genetic variants and see what their outcomes are as they take these substances in the future.
0: Joining us now is Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Tiffany. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting topic, an interesting story you wrote about, about an emerging, emerging industry that's aiming to help people pick the best drug for them and the right dosing too so we're mm-hmm. seeing companies that are developing at-home DNA tests that will uh, look at you in a, a number of different ways um, and then see you know what your response could be to marijuana what it could be to other psychedelic drugs like psilocybin which is magic mushrooms or MDma things like that and you know the effort is to possibly help avoid getting a bad trip so uh Tiffany you took a look into this uh, what are we seeing with these
2: You know, these are still at a really early stage. Most of these companies have just started selling them. I think it's interesting, they're already being sold, you know, even though a lot of these products aren't really legal um, in some jurisdictions. And, you know, a lot of the companies that plan to sell them are still really developing them. But what you see is, you know, a consumer desire to know, you know, might I be one of those people who, you know, is not only going to get a bad trip, but might be predisposed for some sort of lasting psychosis or, or schizophrenia and then from the company side you know they really want to know as they do their research i think you know can they weed people like that out
0: you know i totally understand that being a pretty a legitimate concern right nobody wants that bad trip nobody wants a lasting psychosis especially i mean that seems horrible right but people just don't know a lot of times the dosing is an issue, right? People take too much and they screw themselves up. So, But let's talk about a couple of these companies because there's many mm-hmm. of them and many of them operate on different levels. But uh, let's start off with uh, one that's called Endocana Health Incorporated. They have a home saliva testing kit that sold for $199. This one, I think, is tailored a little more to marijuana. But how does that work? What are they looking at when they're testing you?
2: You know, they're looking at these genetic markers um, that make... Meet- predispose someone to, you know, maybe having a bad reaction, um, some of the scientists have spoken with however, say, you know, the science is still out, the jury is still out on some of these. Uh, I think, you know, the, I'm not sure with this company in particular, but a lot of these companies may one day also plan to take data now that they have, you know, as they develop a database of people who have these genetic variants and see what their outcomes are as they take these substances in the future.
0: And what is the output like, though, when they test you and they give you results back? Is it kind of like 23 Me or something? You know, it gives you like a link to a website and you can kind of go from there? Or do they have people that go it's, over the results with you?
2: It's similar. It, it is very web-based. One of the ones I went further with was the Entheon biomedical test. Um, and there you can get a dashboard of your results. So it will show you, you know, which genes you have a certain variant in that might predispose you to something. And then there's a link you can follow that sort of takes you to the scientific studies that potentially link this to having some sort of reaction to certain drugs.
0: And that's an interesting one, too, because obviously, as you mentioned, they're looking at a bunch of different genetic markers. But that one takes a look at five different factors. So it looks at liver enzymes to see what your ketamine metabolism might be. Serotonin and a couple of other things. What is that looking at? Just nailing down, nailing those down.
2: Yeah, I mean a lot of these companies are looking at how people metabolize drugs and whether there are certain genetic markers that show, you know, someone's likely to be a slow metabolizer and therefore, you know, the dose should be changed that way. Um, and of course the science is still evolving on on that as well as these other genes that influence how the brain processes dopamine. So, you know, there is one gene AKT1 gene that the National Institute of Drug Abuse has said, you know, this gene, a certain variant, in it could be linked to higher risk of psychosis in people who use marijuana. So that's an example of the kind of thing some of these companies are testing for.
0: Yeah, it's so, uh, so interesting that you know they're trying to nail it down that much. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of uh, risks involved with all this. As you mentioned, You know, a lot of these drugs are still illegal in many, many places, most places, I would say. But there's still a lot of investors that are willing to back some of these companies or even help develop these types of products.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the hope in the psychedelic space is that this isn't going to be something recreational. This is going to be something that takes an FDA pathway. These drugs eventually, um, the companies are hoping they will get approved for certain things.
0: Going uh, back to uh, marijuana, you know, we talk a lot about metabolizing and all that stuff. You know, there's other things that take effect. You know, this kind of that broader discussion of the science and how well some of these work. Not everybody is necessarily sold on just the genetic markers because with things like marijuana, you know, foods that you eat also impact Mm -hmm. how the effect on the body happens.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the people who look at the cannabis um, factors have said, look, we don't even understand what all the different cannabinoids and terpenes and and different things in the plants do. And then each plant has you know variations in it much less being able to connect that back to you know one person's gene and then you have to factor in things like how hydrated is the person what time of day is it um and you know there's anecdotal stories about things like mango juice changing <laughs> the way you process these things so you know it's a very complicated endeavor there's still a lot of research yet to be done i think
0: yeah that's definitely one i had not heard of before i guess mango has a <laughs> reputation for enhancing the effects of cannabis. I, I,
2: I never, yum. I never heard that
0: one. So, um, so what are some of the other companies that uh, you profiled that are that are working on on these types of tests and and looking into this?
2: Well, Atai is a really big company, um, and they have something in one of their divisions. Um, And interestingly, you know, their chairman said, look, maybe we don't want to, to weed bad trips out. A bad trip is not always a bad outcome. It's something some people, you know, find rewarding when they go through these psychedelic experiences. Um, And another company is MindMed, and, you know, there's also still very early stage. They're not selling any kind of consumer test kit at this point, but they're looking quite broadly at a bunch of different things, you know, maybe getting information from things like your step counter, pulse rate sensors, sleep patterns, and then trying to determine, you know, what drugs might help people with certain conditions and at what dose.
0: You no, I'm curious if, um, you know, you know, medical studies, people that are conducting some of this stuff, obviously, it's hard with these drugs that are, you know, not legal. But if they would want to get into get in on the action of this stuff, too, because, you know, it might help them further their studies. It, you know, I always go back to it with marijuana, right? It's still mm-hmm. legal at the federal level and so hard to do so many studies with it on that front. You know, I'm wondering if they would want to be involved with some of these companies as well, just trying to get as much data as they could.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is something that could really broadly help the whole psychedelics sector and cannabis as well. If you can sort of weed out you know, who some of these people are who have a predisposition for a bad experience or some sort of lasting effect, you know, if those people aren't, you know, if they're able to separate those people out during the clinical trial phase, that obviously helps the research of the drug. Um, and then if these things are on the market, that could help give consumers more confidence.
0: Before we go, I just wanted to go back to that one little thing that you said about one of the people you spoke to that you know, maybe having a bad trip is not the worst type mm. of outcome. <laughs> why Why did they go in that? You know, I, I, ayahuasca comes to mind when I think <laughs> of that because people have violent reactions to it, but then they right. go through that phase of personal introspection and whatever, you know, that's what uh, mm-hmm. people that do ayahuasca kind of go through after that, right? But you have to go through the ringer before you get to that point. And so that's kind of the thing that comes to my mind. But, you know, what, what did they, what did they say about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, People can have all sorts of bad experiences and then interpret it the way you do, say, a bad nightmare, right? And you draw some sort of meaning from that um, and sort of come to terms. You know, a lot of these, a lot of the research for these things is being done for conditions like depression or PTSD, where there might be some trauma in the person's past. So if you don't go through the bad experience, there's a question of whether you're processing trauma, I guess.
0: I mean, there you go. I mean, it's just an interesting look into how these companies are developing these tests to... Help you nail it down, I guess. Make it make it a lot, a uh, much better experience for you. Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.